Insights, interviews, and best practices by clinicians for clinicians. Welcome to GE Healthcare's Clinical View Podcasts. Well, hello and welcome back to Anesthesiology 2023, the annual meeting of the American Society of Anesthesiologists. Topman Talk is here in the exhibit hall at the Moscone Center in beautiful San Francisco. It's been a fabulous two days of anesthesiology. I'm Desiree Chapel. I'm your host today and my co-host, the new co-editor-in-chief. Joining me today is Mike Grocott. Hello, Mike. Good afternoon. Congratulations on your promotion. We are afternoon. I'm on it. It's yes. it's nice that you managed to retain the accent. <laughs> that, was that a qualification for the it was. co-editor? You can only be a you can yeah. only be a, a co-editor in chief if you have a British accent. Yeah. Sorry, guy. Oh, or, or guy Guy Ledbrook, who is our guest co-host today. Thanks so much for sitting down with us. Great to be here. And only because you have that accent can you be that. <laughs> I could put on my New Zealand accent next. But we'll see. <laughs> and of course, you've heard now our our esteemed guest, a fan fave actually on Top Med Talk. I know, Rick Dutton. Rick, thanks for coming <laughs> back and sitting sure. down with us. So Rick, you are Chief Quality Officer for USAP. Yep. And um, we've had many conversations over the years at Anesthesiology and other meetings too, sitting down talking about the amazing work. You are like, I hate to say the quality guru because there's a lot of quality gurus in anesthesia, but you are the quality guru in anesthesiology. Well, thank you for saying so. You are. You are. You've done a lot of really good work. So, um, and I'm referring to some of the work that you've done in the past. Tell us a little bit about your background, you know, what you've been doing and kind of where you are now, because you've actually recently had a change. Yes. So, yes, I had a relapse. Um, <laughs> You're calling that. <laughs> so uh, I used to say I was a recovering traumatologist. My first career was as first life. <laughs> a, a trauma anesthesiologist in Baltimore at the Shock Trauma Center. And I was I did research in resuscitation and did the whole academic track. In 2010-ish, I shifted gears, went to work for the ASA as uh, their quality officer, uh, chief quality officer, uh -huh. set up the Anesthesia Quality Institute, started a national registry, got involved in all sorts of big picture stuff in yeah. anesthesia. And then in 2015, took that background and joined U.S. Anesthesia Partners, which is a nationwide private practice, physician-run um, and it really is a private practice, uh, but about 5,000 clinicians right now, they wanted a chief quality officer. They wanted to be the best practice in the country. They said, come, <laughs> let's, come let's tell us how Rick. to do that. <laughs> and yeah, they were, they were, it was a compelling job description. So I've been with USAP since then. So about eight years now, uh, enjoying it very much. And, you know, I have the resources and the scope to do some cool things. Right. So we built our infrastructure and uh -huh. that was built. And then we had COVID and that was kind of exciting. And then I was bored. And so, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I have, as I say, relapsed and I am still a chief quality officer and mm -hmm. still engaged um, on the national front. But I am also now going back to being a traumatologist wow. and being a site chief at a community hospital in Washington, D.C. in the OR every day. It's sort of fun. Yeah, enjoying it. You can tell it that yep. whenever you talk about it, you're like getting your hands dirty again. Yes, little, little sparkle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's cool. <laughs> That's great. Well, Rick, we've had lots of conversations, like I said, over the years about differing things. We actually worked together 
on a project this last year, we were talking about that presented last year, IOH intraoperative hypotension and the incidence of IOH really based in a community setting, not necessarily academia. One of the topics that I know we have not actually discussed much here on Top Med Talk with you, we have had several discussions about it, is neuromuscular blockade and the monitoring Mm -hmm. of that. And I know that's something that you have spoken a lot about and you were on the published guidelines that just came out this year from the ASA, practice guidelines for monitoring and antagonism, antagonism of neuromuscular blockade, a report by the ASA task force. I thought it would be good for us to kind of walk through that just a little bit and talk about neuromuscular monitoring and, you know, what's actually happening in the OR right now. Because I think what the guidelines say and what's happening, there may be a little bit of a difference. I don't know. That just could be me. Oh, no, very much. <laughs> yeah. So this was, uh, this was, I'm still not exactly sure how I got pulled into that guideline <laughs> process. Uh, friends in the wrong place. Uh, exactly. But, um, but it was a great, that was actually a very good ASA guideline and uh, sort of perfect um, yeah. because we had the advantage of a great body of very strong scientific evidence about the risks of residual neuromuscular blockade and the value of monitoring and reversal strategies. So there's yeah. a, a lot been published on it, and I don't know how many thousand papers we reviewed as part of the guideline, but the evidence base is very solid. And at the same time, the application of that evidence base was essentially zero. Yeah. A and big gap in the knowledge yes. versus doing kind of thing. Yes. yes. So we got to publish a guideline with a very strong recommendation that absolutely nobody in the country is following <laughs> at this moment. <laughs> well, no. And so, no so for a quality improvement guy, this is a wonderful implementation project. Uh-huh. And now we are getting into the implementation side of, yeah. of you know, what do we do? Yeah. Uh, how do we reconcile this? Yeah. So. Well, let's walk it back and talk about what that, the actual problem that this is addressing. Because as team anesthesia... We take care of our patients. We drop them off and pack you and depending, yeah, and see you later. Yes. So it, you may, as an anesthesiologist, stick around for a little while. As an, a nurse anesthetist or an AA, you may drop them off and go to your very next case and never see that patient again. And so, you know, do we think that there's actually a problem with what you were highlighting in this as um, retain, you know, residual neural mus- muscular blockade? Yes, absolutely. So again, very good science that... Uh, First of all, that you have a high incidence of residual blockade. If you manage your neuromuscular blockade in the normal fashion, you give some rocuronium. Every so often the surgeon barks at you, you give some more rocuronium, <laughs> uh, or the patient starts breathing, and you know you, you pile it on. And then at the end of the case, we reverse it somehow and send the patient to the PACU. And as long as we got the endotracheal tube out, we're done. Pretty. Yep. Right. So it turns out there's a substantial incidence. Again, first piece of evidence. If you go and measure those people in the PACU as they hit there, there are a substantial number, and it's 10 to 30 percent, depending on what you read, that are still weak mm-hmm. and measurably weak. And then the next step, which is, and those weak people do worse. And they have a higher incidence of aspiration. They have a higher incidence of pneumonia, subsequent pulmonary complications uh, down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in a small incidence of needing to be reintubated, which is the only part we ever see. Right. They also, it turns out, and this is something I can measure, have a lower patient satisfaction. And yeah, would imagine. Um, the patients don't like being weak either. Yeah. So they're less happy about their anesthetics. So, as I say, very good evidence base. This is bad. Yeah. Yeah. Guy, I mean, from an international perspective, and Mike, too, I mean, is this something that you guys are dealing with? 
Yeah, this is a journey we've travelled for a while. Mm. So I remember our College Safety and Quality Committee meeting look at our guidelines a few years back and there was a huge debate about whether we should, and should is the right word, recommend that they should be used mm -hmm. if you're planning to reverse and extubate. And there was great debate about that and in particular some people were concerned that there won't be the resources to have the, the monitors. Mm -hmm. But we felt, you know, we're not going to get the traction towards that funding unless we do it. So we said should. But equally, the gap between that and what I see in our operating rooms is enormous. And, you know, we have uh, quantitative monitoring in every operating room in my hospital. Use maybe 10% of the time hmm. if you're lucky. Interesting. Uh, to the point that an implementation, what we've been discussing lately is, well, and what I do in my private practice is my anesthesia nurse puts it on for me. In the same way that the EKG, the oximeter, the blood pressure, we wouldn't start a case without it. Do I put it on? No, they put it on. So we're going to try and get the people who are actually incredibly reliable, which is our, <laughs> our anesthesia nurses or techs, depending on, on where you are, and make that part of what you know the, the standard practice is because we're not very good at standard practice very often. So it's a journey where we're traveling and we're not you know at the, out the other side yet. Yeah. And Mike, similar? Far from perfect. I mean, we usually have the kit available, but um, the level of use is highly variable. Yeah. So it depends on individual practitioners and, and institutional culture. Yeah. So we have residual blockade. Patients don't like it. It's not good for them. It's not good for the system. Costly. All the things. Um, the guidelines and what Mike and Guy were referring to is that now it spe specifies that we should be monitoring yeah, that if we're using non-depolarizing yeah. blocking drugs, we should have quantitative monitoring. And this is a high-grade recommendation that will become a standard of care in the U.S. I shouldn't use that word yeah. uh, here in the ASA's halls, uh, right. <laughs> but, it, but it will become a standard of care, and, and it should. Yeah. I mean, I am a smarter doctor yeah. with quantitative monitoring, and having used it myself and gotten my hands on it, it helps. Yeah. Not just the, the little <coughs> twitch monitor that we that everyone uses that's not Correct. as useful. Not effective. And the, yeah. there are, I think, eight specific recommendations in the document. The, the most important one being you should use quantitative monitoring. You should confirm that the patient is fully recovered before you extubate them, which is train of four ratio over 90 in mm -hmm. very round numbers. And... How do we get from that to actually doing it every day in the operating yeah. room is, as I say, that's the big challenge. Right. Well, you know, I, I guess let's talk about technology at, at this point because, I mean, in my ORs, we don't even have the monitors. I mean, Guy, I know you said you have them everywhere. We don't have them in any yeah. my so ORs. You're, you're, you may feel bad about where you all are, <laughs> but that's a step ahead of where we are in America. We're in private practice world. They don't exist. Yeah. Really? And, yeah. yeah. Okay. And many, most of our graduating residents have seen it. Yeah. And what they have seen is largely the clunky old accelerometers or mechano uh, monitors that you can't tuck the arms. They're very finicky. They need to be calibrated. You have to get a baseline. And this is just too much work, as you were implying. You know, this is just too much. And people won't do that for the perceived benefit. What we're now looking out at is a whole exhibitor's hall full of better monitors now with a much better form factor, a single sticker, slap it on, plug it in, you get a number from zero to 100. This is very easy to, to think about and manage. Yeah. And that's being included on a lot of new anesthesia machines, correct? 
It should be. I don't honestly know. Yeah. I haven't bought new anesthesia machines in a <laughs> yeah. while. But, yeah. but, but yes. It, it's being integrated, I yes. think, into a lot of the platforms. And, and, and it needs to be. It needs to become part of our standard of care yeah. and just be everywhere as it is for you guys. And I think as it gets easier to use, it will be more commonly used. I mean, that's Yeah. Well, as a quality guru, you're also a change management guru. So... Whether well, you are, yeah, okay. Um, I mean, you've had to make it, you've had to do this a lot and roll these types of things out. And I mean, as we've all said, it's hard. Adoption of this is hard, it's a newer technology, it's not complicated to use, um, it's pretty easy. Where do you think, how do we roll this out and get adoption of this? I mean, once we get technology in, in our hands, then what do we do next? Yeah, so uh, I told you I'm back, you know, running a small yeah. hospital, so. I'm the perfect guinea pig. Yeah. <laughs> I want this at my hospital. How do I make that happen? Yeah, exactly. So um, the stepwise path, I find a local champion. So one of my CRNAs, is, you know, yeah. you're, you're going to be our expert on quantitative neuromuscular blockade monitoring. Call these five vendors, get demos in. Any of them who want to come here and, you know, bring their box and a bunch of disposables and do a bunch of cases with us. Let's do that. That's the first step. That'll get everybody a little comfortable with it. They'll start to see how it works. They will, like, as I have experience, yeah, that's, that's pretty easy, right? I, I get, you know, 90 out of 100. That's yeah. kind of straightforward. <laughs> I understand that. And, and they'll be able to see the other benefits. So the better titration of the medicine during the case, you know, the cleaner wake up at the end of the case, mm -hmm. you know, they'll, they'll start to sense that. And then, we'll, then I'll go fight the battle with the hospital about getting the technology. It's not that expensive. Yeah. And particularly the advantage is we do have five different vendors. Yeah. Right. So uh, we will get the technology, we'll get the disposable, and we'll start using it. And again, I'll pick a particular project. You know, we'll pick colorectal surgery or joint replacement or something. We'll start on a single focus service line. We'll build it into the protocol for that kind of patient and it will become routine. Yeah. So whatever we, so as a clinician and a person that drives quality at uh, my facility and, and that of a lot, you know, it's, it's hard to go to the C-suite to ask for more money right now. Even if it's not very much, it still is hard. So value proposition of this, like I think we've had previous discussions about how you get in front of a PT <clears throat> committee or a capital committee or something like that to really make the case. What is the case for this? Um, I don't know how this plays in Australia or England, but one of the uh, advantages we have is that I'm getting daily flack from my hospital administrators about the cost of Sugamidex. Oh. So I can say, look, you want to use less Sugamidex? Here's a way. You know, if we did this, if we were using this technology every case every day, 20% of our patients wouldn't need reversal. And we'd be able to oh. not reverse them confidently that they're going yeah. to be fine, yeah. right? Because we have a number, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, reducing that much Sugamidex use will completely pay for yeah. this. So <clears throat> it's different budgets in my hospital. So there still the has to be something. I got to get it out of the money out of the pharmacy bucket <laughs> into the OR bucket. But, but effectively, that'll make this argument a little easier. But pharmacy would be happy. Yes. And if pharmacy's happy... It's like if mama ain't happy, everybody else you, you, can be happy. You, you hope that, that <laughs> there's some bright enough light there in hospital administration to recognize that making pharmacy happy is worth spending a little money in the OR, yeah. Yeah. So the guidelines when they came out, we know now that this is what we're supposed to be doing. What were some of the other things that it talked about? It talked about neuromuscular blockade monitoring. It talked about Sugamidex use. Yeah, so monitor and use that to guide extubation. 
use the wrist, not the eyeball. That's right. That was right? a so that's that was an important one. Laid out and, and there. as we reviewed all the literature monitoring the ubiquitous oculi or whatever yeah. muscle you actually happen to get, which is not clean. Yeah, very um, cool. is essentially worthless. Yeah. Um, so it's always at the <laughs> So wrist or you can you can do the adductor in the leg or the posterior tubular nerve in the leg as well. Those are all pretty consistent and that's where all the literature, the sound literature is. So that's a minor recommendation for the nerds in the audience. Yeah. <laughs> And, well, it makes a difference. Part yeah. of the change management. And then the other big one has to do with reversal. So any block that's more than mild. Mm -hmm. So if your train of four ratio is under 80, which it usually is, you should be using Sugamidex and not Neostigmate. And that's mm -hmm. the other big recommendation in the that's thing. Right. And that's several different lines, but that's what yeah. it boils down to. And the information that we gather from the objective monitor is really what we have to use. I mean, that's Correct. not, you can't just use the, you know, the Twitch monitor that we've always used and said, oh, that looks like a mile yeah, no, block. Yeah, it's, it's not stated as a specific line item, but throughout the whole document, <laughs> it's very clear that the traditional way of doing it is worthless. Yeah, yeah. and that does not work yeah. to, to guide reversal. The, 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 the human eyeball and feeling mm -hmm. the patient's thumb, you cannot discriminate any level of block above 40. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it doesn't help. It's interesting. So having helped define the guidelines, I felt I better practice what I preach. Yeah. So that, that would be helpful. So I did that. And it wasn't interesting. It wasn't so much about the reversal, which is relevant, but it was also about, as you mentioned, during the case. And I yeah. realized how badly I was practicing <laughs> yeah. my neuromuscular Waiting for the surgeon body. to say, I need more relaxation. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, I mean, it's not perfect because the diaphragm's sort of pretty resistant. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and of course, with laparoscopic surgery, they can see everything every little bits and pieces. Yeah. But that aside, I realized I was far from perfect in using it during the case. Mm. And I felt I was getting giving better anesthesia yeah. in that phase. And yeah, I, I can't that. prove that. I, it's hard to measure. But I realized that what I was doing wasn't logical. So it did lead to a change in practice. But I do have to, you know, and certainly in my private practice, my regular kind of anesthesia nurse will be the one that puts it on and reminds me, which is really good because I'm just generally unreliable, as you know. But, uh, <laughs> oh, that's not true. You've been extremely reliable for Top Med Talk. So, yeah, it, the guideline was for one reason, but funnily enough, it had a different sort of impact. At least that's what I sense, uh, and both being positive. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, but we have had a couple of cases. I mean, now I practice more and more kind of post-operative care. Yeah, um, So, right. you know, we pick up a lot of patients in the recovery room and manage them from there on in. And we've had two or three very dramatic cases mm. of weakness, completely unnoticed. I mean, really serious weakness, really unnoticed and probably should have been, if you look at the dose regimen provided, wouldn't be a surprise. But, you know, renal impairment, laparoscopic surgery with the creatinine clearance decimated during positive pressure in the abdomen and so on everything's kind of changing and getting a bit more unreliable, uh, but some really quite profound ones and unrecognized by the, the really? clinicians, even sort of when called. But those of us have been around the block a few times could, you know, can see it. So, yeah, it, I, I think the need is there. I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, compliance is the key and, and what we need to do that, talking carrots and sticks, how do we do that best? But, yeah, there's, we've got the gear, Mm -hmm. uh, but to not use it is, is I think, a, a shame, and I think that it comes at a cost. Yeah. Well, we've, again, talked a lot about using different technology and software and all these different things to really help standardize practice because, I mean, it's the variation. It's those people that don't recognize 
that, that their patient's weak or, you know, that they're not reversed well. I mean, we have a lot of, you know, younger people coming into the field that have not seen that. Like we recognize that very easily. I can see, you know, someone having a struggling a little bit, but maybe someone who's not been doing this for a while, they don't. Yeah. And I, I think the answer to this one, and, and some of this is epiphany from this weekend, oh, yeah. just, just really? being around, but I think uh, the answer to this one is going to be to make it the easy and expected thing to do. Right. right. So it's just routine for every case like this. The same way you put, put the EKG the pads, like you said. Yep. We put this on easiest possible technologies. The form factor really matters. And just make it an expectation in the next generation of anesthesiologists yeah. that this is part of de delivering general anesthesia and it will always be there. And so, I mean, anytime you're trying to change, you want what you're trying to change to to be the easiest way to do it. And the more we can set it up that way, the better we're going to do. And I, the epiphany is, there, we have a lot of problems right now. <laughs> yeah. But not just on the downside, on the upside, we have enormous opportunities to give better patient care. Yeah. Right? There's, medicine is advancing very rapidly right now. And we have an issue. So the change management business in general has an issue with, uh, call it headspace. In yeah, our clinicians' brains, right? Which problems, which, it's not so much having the burning platform, it's which platform is burning more. The worse, yeah. <laughs> that, that I need to address. And that's the problem, you know, so am I, am I focusing on interoperative hypotension today right, or right, right. on yeah. neuromuscular blockade reversal or on just having enough people to my OR, yeah. right? And the care ratios and everything else. And Maslow's hierarchy kind of comes into this too. Correct, exactly. <laughs> and, and, so that's the biggest problem right now is our mm -hmm. clinic, you can call it, it kind of manifests as burnout, right? There's yeah, too yeah, many problems sure. to solve and how do I decide which one is the most I can't deal with all this other stuff. I, I just got to show up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, everybody likes progress. Nobody likes change. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So, so making it, from my point of view, if I want to get this one implemented, um, I am really focusing hard on making it routine. This is, you don't have to think about this. It's not taking up extra headspace. It's just how we do it. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the questions I wanted to say, we so we have, like I said, worked together in IOH and work on some other projects. Um, and I know we've had lots of discussion about kind of what the future of anesthesia care looks like and, and bringing technology in not to replace us, but to kind of create our tools and, and make them work together. True. So like we have blood pressure monitoring, we have e e, you know, processed EEG and depth of anesthesia monitoring. Now we have this. Can you see all this kind of coming together? To That observation remains 100%. Yeah. And every year we get a little closer to uh -huh. it. Dr. Mukherjee's talk yesterday, the, the plenary for the meeting, augmented intelligence is oh, the term yeah. he used. So not AI, but AI, but augmented intelligence. How do we make the doctor smarter? And the huge opportunity we have as technologists in the OR is to have all our technology talking to itself and synthesizing yeah. thinking for us. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because, uh, I mean, they also they interact. I mean, there's been a lot of sort of talk around the relationship between neuromuscular blockade and, and processed EEG as yeah, well. Exactly. And yeah. at the extremes, it's weird. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in, in normal circumstances, I'm not sure it's a big factor, but you can yeah. sort of see it. But that probably speaks to that point. They're not isolated monitors, actually, because they are slightly dependent on each other. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about, um, before we wrap here, I think you, you just touched on it, like how to, how to make our anesthesia clinicians, those who are taking care of patients every day, smarter. 
and and how do we integrate this technology? Because that is, you know, it's it's similar to what we've been talking about, but it, it's really taking it to the next level. Yeah, and right now the concept of machine learning yeah. or, or AI in our monitors is very scary to a lot of people, including our FDA um, on the regulatory side. Um, but in fact, it just needs to be and will be completely baked in and invisible to us, mm -hmm. right? So when I started in medicine, if I wanted a hematocrit, I went to the lab and put blood in a centrifuge and, and spun it and <laughs> looked at the hematocrit, right? And now I don't do that anymore. And, yeah. and when I was a kid and you stepped on the brake pedal, there was a mechanical <laughs> connection to the wheels of your car that made it stop. And that Not has, me. but that hasn't yeah. been true for 20 years now. When I step on the brakes, a computer decides how much brake force to apply to the wheels of my car, right? So it's all... Or if you don't step on the brake, it actually steps, stops or, the yeah, car and, for and you. Today, it stops the car anyway, whether I step on the brake or not. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. So this will become normal background in the OR as our monitors talking to each other and giving you a synthesized opinion about anesthetic depth and fluid status and you know risk factors for lots of different things. State of blockade will be part of that. And, and making specific recommendations to me. Yeah. And and who knows, maybe the generation after that, it'll give the rock your onion. I was just to say, it'll be a, a closed loop or actually an yeah. open loop system that it says this is what your train of four is and this is the amount of reversal that you need to give. Or you need to keep your patient at this level of of um, block. And so yeah. then at the end, we'll reverse it for you. Yeah, exactly. I'll just tell it, keep the person relaxed. Yeah. For, yeah, and then I'm, we're done. So <laughs> I won't even have to say that because it'll be looking at the feed well, from the laparoscope, and when the camera comes out, wow, it will no. reverse the patient on its own. <laughs> why, why should I have to make that decision? Yeah. That one's easy. So, uh, will we have to read the newspaper during the case then? Or yeah. No idea? Maybe we'll set it up so it's read to you. Listen. <laughs> so what? So but what it will not know is who is actually having to close. And what layers they're closing. Correct. So oh, we no have a way. student in the OR today. <laughs> right. So maybe the system we want is it reads the RFID tag of everybody coming into oh, the operating gosh. room. And if there's a student standing within one yeah. foot of the incision, <laughs> oh, wow. it gives the reversal later than if it's oh my gosh. only the yeah, so you can you can I, play this game for a long time. You can play this right? game <laughs> for a long time. I know. But I don't think that's anytime soon that any yeah. of us are gonna be replaced yeah. <laughs> to be given anesthesia. So um, well, Rick, I feel like there's so many topics I would love <laughs> to be able to talk to you about today. Um, just, you know, I know we've, uh, the IOH project, I know I keep coming, coming back to that and talking about that, but I think it's, it's something we put a lot of work into this last year and talking about where we want to go in the future with that. Where do you see that really moving and, and where do you think we can go next on that? Yeah. So better connection of process to outcomes. Yeah. So the presence of IOH and then who gets kidney failure? Yeah. Because it's not everybody, obviously, and it probably is a more selected population that is at the highest risk. So getting that connection better built. And then uh, mitigation, Yeah. right? Um, you know, that's nice to know, and that'll be important for some parts of the project. But on the other hand, who cares? Yeah. We know intraoperative hypotension is bad. Let's just fix it. And that's the implementation side of it. So it's the same change management of how do we recognize the problem earlier there's a, there are technology solutions, as I know you've been talking about, and how do we get people to react to it yeah. in the right way? Yeah. So. One of the questions I'm dying to ask you, do you think we need to reframe this instead of saying IOH or intraoperative hypotension is bad? Because now we know that some people are trying to fix it. The MPOG paper came out with um, Choi talking about that they didn't have much 
IOH, but then they ended up, they reduced IOH, but they actually ended up having more AKI after. Is it more of hemodynamic instability, you think? I don't know quite what the right term is. Having been a resuscitationist longer than just about anything else, the combination of flow, microvascular circulation, where is the blood actually going? Because you can have very good flow, but no perfusion at the tissue level. And getting the right balance of pressors, anesthetic agent, and volume. Yeah. Which is the the art of what we do every day in the OR is trying to juggle that. Uh, I think there's enormous possibility for machine learning, AI, to help us know that. And yeah, the Empire paper... We fixed IOH by giving a lot of pressors. Oops, that... Oh, that, that maybe was, not the right app. That, that wasn't right either. Unexpected <laughs> consequences. Yeah. Yeah, at the end, that's what I actually was titling. What our conversation was going to be the unintended, unintended consequences yeah. of what we do and how yeah, we do yeah. it. Yeah, the, the law of unintended consequences has not been repealed. Yeah. And, and we were talking about this last year, I think, when I was over. I mean, we're doing a sort of straw poll across various continents. And anesthesiologists seem to be very scared of fluids. Very keen oh, on vasopressors. Yes. Uh, the pendulum's uh, so, way over there on the dry uh, side and right it, now. And <laughs> it's really swung, and, yeah. and it, it's hard to know what to do because you can kind of dial a blood pressure with a, with a vasopressor, uh, but you do see some serious mismatches between what's on the floor and, and kind of what's yep. been put in, uh, which you can patch up. So yep. the numbers look good. So I guess to, to, to you... Words, Desiree, is it hypotension? What is the thing that yeah. that, that, that describes what we're talking about? Um, mm. So, yeah, it, it seems to be a trend. It's not ideal and, and um, uh, just yeah, protecting your blood pressure doesn't seem to always do it. Uh, yeah. But, again, I, it, it can be a bit tricky in the operating Absolutely. room to know exactly where you are. Well, yeah. I have to reflect. Um, Rick, you know we do these pokies, the Paraptive Quality mm-hmm. Initiative. <clears throat> And we did a, a refresh in London of blood pressure, fluids, goal-directed therapy. And as an experiment for the first time, so excuse my voice, I think <coughs> I'm We're talking out. too much. <laughs> yeah. But as an experiment for the first time, we road-tested the outputs of the, oh, yeah. what is a relatively small, so 20, 30-person expert consensus group on an audience of 350, 400 people. And... They voted, and in the vast majority of cases, we were 90% plus support for whatever the recommendation was. And the single, there were a couple, but the, the, the really standout recommendation, which didn't get widespread support, was the one with arguably the greatest evidential support in the form of Paul Miles' relief study, which is give, uh, roughly how much fluid do you give? Lots of disagreement. Yeah. yeah. The only one, actually, it was just really the only one, maybe one or two, yeah. that there was not unanimous. It was just crazy. Other things with no evidence, absolute support. Yeah. yeah. 100%. hundred yeah. People said, yes, they agree. Really interesting. Yeah. Well, it, well having been around for a while, pendulum, we're, we're <laughs> yeah. in a very dry swing of the pendulum right at the moment and a lot of the popular mindset, but that's just as wrong as the wet end of the pendulum. And I think enhanced recovery, <laughs> yeah. great as it's been in many, many ways, enhanced recovery has yeah. driven that in part. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and I mean, we've banged on a lot about this, but you know, we talked to Henrik Killette actually five years ago um, here at the meeting and asked specifically this question. He's like, I never said anything about fluid restriction. He's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, Avoidance I, of fluid avoid overload. fluid overload. He yeah. goes, that's what I said. Exactly. He said, we did not say restrict. But we did a wonderful conversation with um, uh, Brigitte Brandstrup at EBPOM last year, because really that 
terminology of restriction, that's when it really started to creep in. And she's like, that is not at all what I meant. I did not mean. And so I think it's just been over the years, people say, let's just fluid restrict. And that's what goal-directed therapy is. And, you know, there's been a real mismatch of what it really is and what people think it is. Yeah. If you want my wild speculation on that. So the pendulum will come back to the Goldilocks right amount of fluid, which will then let us get to the next important question, which is what fluid? Oh, And again, having resuscitated trauma patients, we figured out eventually that blood was the right fluid. Uh, For a lot of our OR patients, I'm not sure we know what the right fluid is, and it probably isn't normal saline. And some of the evils we attribute to fluid overload are as actually probably normal saline poisoning in some way. (laughs) So whether we need a better isotonic crystalloid or whether we should be using some non-coagulogenic plasma variant or the does a good job of preserving the glycocalyx and perfusion and all. I don't know, but I think there's a bunch of work that will happen there eventually. That's great. Well, I'm teeing up our next conversation, or not next. I think our our conversation is going to be at 3.15 today. Uh, Louise Sunday and Cole, Mike Scott, talking about um, an initiative through the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation or work that they have done around intraoperative hypotension hemodynamics. Mike, you actually were part of that as well, correct? I was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Meeting in Philadelphia, Towards the end of last year. Yeah. Yeah. Rick, were you there too? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Number. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, we're, we're teeing up this conversation because we're going to talk a little bit about some of those um, recommendations and thoughts that came out of, out of that group. So we'll, we'll save well, that for that group. Um, thank you so much. I hope you had a good, t- a good time here in San Francisco. Oh yeah. No, yeah. always fun. Yeah. And it's always good to visit with all my friends and, and yeah. do this. Yeah, I love it. Keep inviting me. <laughs> you will, right. and you've avoided the jeopardy because uh, there's no way people online would know this, but we have pigeons flying by overhead <laughs> oh, in, really? inside this ASA building, and I'm just <laughs> waiting for one of them to. <laughs> I've always heard it's good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'll be leaving. Now. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks again. Um, great conversation. Uh, you can all find all of our all of our conversations that we've done here at the ASA and in previous anesthesiology meetings at topmedtalk.com. We are on X, which formerly known as Twitter, in case you didn't, you haven't heard. Uh, <laughs> LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, we're there. Follow us. Um, give us a thumbs up whenever you see one of our videos. We always appreciate that. Again, a huge shout out. Thank you to the ASA for supporting us to be here this year. We could not do it without you. It's a beautiful booth, beautiful setting, wonderful guests here in San Francisco. It's been absolutely fantastic. So thank you. Thank you. And of course, Thank you to our sponsors that have been there for us over the years, especially GE Healthcare. We couldn't do it without you, Medtronic, and our found, one of our founding sponsors, Edwards Life Sciences. Cheers. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Top Med Talk. Thanks for downloading Top Med Talk. Don't forget to subscribe via your podcatcher. Don't forget to check us out on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And also, don't forget, Top Med Talk is the broadcasting arm of EdPom, evidence-based perioptive medicine. We'd love you to find out more about that. If you check out edpom.org, you can find low prices on some of the conferences we're organizing around the world. Many of them are virtual and don't even involve you leaving your own home. Check out edpom.org now. Thank you for listening to Clinical View Podcasts, brought to you by GE Healthcare. Expand your view at clinicalview.gehealthcare.com.